0: Isaiah 42, 1 through 10. Behold my ser- servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for my people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Becky. Uh, you may be wondering why I have a pink pig. Uh, we'll leave that uh, for an illustration in just a minute. I know your curiosity has piqued. Um, as we come to this text... What, what was read is the solution to a problem. And in the verses that came before chapter 42, starting in verse 21 to 29, we learn that there is a problem of idolatry. There's a problem of idolatry in the people where, where the people of Israel were. At the time, they were in Babylon. They had been taken from their land, and the culture was one that that gave themselves to the problem of idolatry. Fortune-telling was a well-established tradition and a major preoccupation. The Babylonians consulted their gods to interpret events and to foretell the future. For example... They would cut open a sheep and the priests would interpret the significance of how its intestines were coiled. Like they saw a message on the insides of an animal. And we can come to the subject of idolatry and we can kind of think it's nutty like that or as crazy as like worshiping a fuzzy pig. And then we can be like, I don't do that at my house. So like, we can tune out. But I want to encourage you to actually tune in. Because idols are a delusion. And God addresses idols in the verses that come before what was just read. So as you have your Bibles open, turn back to Isaiah 41, starting in verse 21, and we're just going to read through those verses and look at the problem before we come to the solution. And as you come to these verses, the, the setting is like a courtroom. It's like a courtroom, and God is coming and He is, is making an address. He's making a challenge. He says in verse 21, "Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs," says the kingdom of Jacob. God God dares idols. Whatever the, the little idols were, they certainly didn't make them out of fuzzy things like this. They would make them out of metal and wood, and he's daring them to be something. He says, let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us things to come. Tell us. What is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. He's challenging these idols. Come on, predict the future. Come on, why don't you just, just predict the future. Tell me, tell me what's going to happen. And it says, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Go ahead, embarrass me. As God is saying these things, it reminds me of First Kings. I'm just going to flip back to 1 Kings verse 27, when, and the context is Elijah and the prophets of Baal. There's like 450 of them. He brings out a couple of uh, animals and, and puts them on the wood and says, okay, why don't you just you know, use your magic arts and bring down fire and consume these things? And they try all these different things. They cut themselves. Nothing's happening. And, and, the, and he mocks them. He says this, cry aloud. For he is a God, either he is musing or maybe he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and he must be awakened. I mean, I can just get that picture. Elijah's just like mocking these guys that are trying to, to do something because they are trying it with a false God. And that's the image here as God is mocking these idols. And then he declares, behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. As much as nothing and powerless as this stuffed animal. You're nothing. And then there's a sober warning. An abomination is he who chooses you. A warning to those who would choose lifeless, fruitless idols. And then he goes on and talks about himself and how the living God is so other than these lifeless idols. He says, I stirred up from the north. And he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads the clay. He's talking about controlling history and raising up leaders that would eventually come and deliver his people, because only God controls history. Only God controls history. He goes on, he says, Who declared it from the beginning? That we might know and beforehand that we might say, He is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. Only God can predict the future. Because he sets his history in motion. He's the one that stays attentive to his creation throughout its existence. He doesn't set it in motion and then walk away. No, our God is intricately and intimately involved. It says, I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. Our God is is the originator of events in all of history. He's the first to say it. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor. Who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Friend, idols... Idols are a sham. That there is, they're counterfeits. They are a delusion. No matter how nice or that they that they look to you, they're nothing. And this whole thing, as we talk about idols, we can be tempted to be like, "Yeah, well, that was them back then." I don't have any fuzzy pigs that I'm worshiping in my house, so I I don't even see how this applies to me. But idolatry is not just a pagan problem. It's a human problem. Idolatry is not just an ancient problem. It's a modern problem. The Old Testament warns us time and again about idolatry, and God's people kept Going back to idols. Even the first commandment, God addresses it. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. And yet, his people, as Moses is getting the Ten Commandments, his people are worshiping a golden calf that they have erected because Moses hasn't come back and their hearts go that direction. God puts that commandment first because if we adhere to that truth where we put God first, the other commandments actually aren't so difficult. But when we get it backwards, we we leave the door open to idolatrous substitutes. So what is an idol for us? Because we might not be crafting images But how would we define what an idol is? Ken Sandy defines it this way. He says, An idol is not simply a statue of wood or stone or metal. It is anything we love and pursue in place of God and can also be referred to as a false god or a functional god. In biblical terms, an idol is something other than God that we set our hearts on, that motivates us, that masters or rules us, or that we serve. Idolatry can explain why we might be dealing with persistent or enslaving sins because the action on the surface, though it's a problem, it's not the problem. And the power of of behavioral change doesn't get rid of it. We need to address the root problem in our hearts. At the heart level, we are making a substitute for God. And it's so pervasive, Jesus addresses it time and again in the New Testament. If you think about the various conversations he had, he addresses the idol of money and possessions when he talks to the rich young ruler and he says, You know, sell everything you have and follow me. Or when he addresses Martha, Remember Mary and Martha, you've got Martha who's frantically moving around trying to get things, you know, ready, taking care of things because Jesus is there and, you know, I've got guests and I've got to do all this stuff and she's got this idol of of busyness and maybe wanting to please man and yet Mary's there worshiping. He addresses that idol. He addresses the idol of recognition or the praise of men when he countlessly calls out the Pharisees and says, you're doing this just because you want to be seen by men. You're fasting just because you want to be seen by men. You're giving in the streets just because you want to be seen by men. You find yourself at the head of a table when you walk into a place because you want to be seen by men. He calls out the heart level idol. So how do we know if we have functional idols in our hearts? We need to ask, is there anything that we desire more than God in our hearts? Asking questions like, what is absolutely essential to my peace? What's essential to my peace? Do I go to God or do I go to the bottle?" What is absolutely essential to your self-image? Do you have to be clothed in the latest fashion or are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? What is absolutely essential to your contentment? I need to, I need to have that the latest widget, that that thing that's or is it worship? What is absolutely essential to your sense of having control in your life? Is it taking control of every situation or trying to take control of every situation in our futile attempts or are we trusting that God is in control? What do you want? What do you desire? What do you crave? What do you wish for? John Calvin said, the evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but what we want too much. What do you fear? What do you tend to worry about? What do you think you need? Where do you find refuge or safety or comfort or escape or pleasure or security? Martin Luther speaks to that. He says, a God that to which we look for all good in which we find refuge in every time of need. That, that's what our God is. is. Is it the God? Is it the God who speaks? Or is it, is it something that, that it doesn't deliver? See, we live in a day where we can lose sight of God, and find ourselves in a place of delusion. And there are many things that are put in front of us because we have resources that that distract us from the one true God. And that doesn't mean that there aren't good blessings and gifts that God's given that we are, del- we are grateful for and that God gives us to bring us joy. And that, not that we don't ever delight in things or enjoy things, but how much do we, and how much do we find our hope in those? Because when we find our hope in those things, when we, when we love them too much, when we want the praise of men, when we put our trust in an institution or an individual, inevitably we will be disappointed or discouraged. We can live in a false reality where we become the center of the universe. When we become the center of the universe, our worship becomes dependent on us or, what, or how others will think of us or say things to us, or perceive us, rather than pleasing God. That's why in the New Testament we are instructed, keep yourselves from idols. Or Paul says in 1 Corinthians, therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. So we want want to ask the hard questions because of the danger that exists there. But I want to make note, there's a reality We don't all experience the same temptations. And so therefore, we're not tempted to the same idols. So we must guard our hearts to ask ourselves the heart-probing questions and not assume that our neighbor is struggling with the same thing because we can look and go, well, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be considering that. That must mean that that is an idol for you. Friends, Jesus, as he would interact with people, he would interact with them individually because we all are tempted to different things. But if we have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can come and we can say, Lord, would you reveal our hearts and his Holy Spirit that he has sent to help us will bring conviction of that sin. And I know that's hard to get conviction of sin, but that's a good thing to get conviction of sin. Because when we get conviction of sin, we can repent of that sin and we can turn to Christ and he is guaranteed the forgiveness of our sins. And then we can experience Christ The root problem we often have with life is we keep going to false gods and their false salvations, and then we wonder why we're disappointed. But the answer is found here in our text. The answer for idolatry is found right here in verse 1 of chapter 42. Behold, my servant. The solution is God's chosen servant. And God's servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know that? We know that because we've heard this before. If you turn your Bibles, leave your finger there in Isaiah 42, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Great thing that we learn here as we're studying this text that Scripture interprets Scripture. Sometimes we read in the Old Testament, we read about prophecies, we read about different things, we're like, man, I'm not sure what, what that means or what that what's that about? Who's, who's God talking about there? Well, no question for us who God's talking about because if we look here in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 15, we know the answer. So Jesus was being uh, uh, pursued by the Pharisees. They were conspiring against him because he was doing miracles. And so he was aware of this. He withdrew and many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. So he's doing great miracles. And this is was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone, anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. In his name the Gentiles will hope. We don't have to wonder, did, did the commentators get it right? Am I perceiving that rightly? No. Matthew just tells us. Gives us the interpretation right out of the gate. This is about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ. That's who this is about. And so if we are struggling, we find ourselves worn down by maybe a struggle with sin. Yes, we want to repent of that as God gives light to that, but the place that we quickly go is to the foot of the cross. Our hope lies in Christ's finished work. He is the one that's going to make all things right. Everything that's messed up and the struggles that we deal with, he's going to make it all right. Because he's going to bring forth justice, as it says. Jesus is God's man for the job to bring forth justice. Look what it says. We'll look back at the text. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Oh, but what a picture there of God's delight in His Son. Such an intimate relationship. One that was more intimate than any relationship. The history of creation. And this is the one whom He sent for us. I have put my spirit upon Him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. We're looking around. People are crying for justice. Crying because everything is a mess. And one commentator said, he said, the word translated justice here includes within its kind of scope and meaning all of our longings for a better life and a better world. Like that justice isn't just so that the criminals will face justice, but just looking around saying everything's a mess and it's Broken. And when we try to fix things, there is some help that happens, but but oftentimes we end up shoving each other around. Now, is it true when we see things like poverty or oppression or illiteracy or things like pollution or other things that just display the broken world? Should we make society better? Should we take steps to see it get better? Yes. I think that's the way in which we display God's kingdom because it's going to be like, not going to be like that in His kingdom. But can we make society the way that we want it to be with human institutions? We can't. Every generation thinks they can. But if we see history time and again, every time man tries to put something in motion, it it doesn't bring about a utopia. Heaven doesn't come to earth. Even in our current country's American experiment, we continue to see brokenness and hurt and pain and suffering. So our salvation and our peace never come from our own efforts. Our idolatries do nothing but corrupt. But God has a solution. God has a solution and earlier on in the book of Isaiah in chapter 9, we learn about how this servant Jesus, what his kingdom is going to be like. In verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah chapter 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of God peace of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness so his kingdom is going to be marked by everything that is right because his kingdom will have citizens in that kingdom who have been completely transformed There's not going to be any police station because the hearts of everyone who is there have been bought with the blood of Jesus and everything will be just and righteousness will be seen throughout and that's going to mark his kingdom. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When God says he's going to do something, it is going to be done and we can count on that. So that's what we are looking to And we must look to him because he is the one who has come to save us. And his character and ability are unparalleled. We need to look to him. And we need to see this description of him right here in the text. He's the only hope of the world. Idolatry corrupts. But this one is the one whom God delights in. Look at verse 2. It says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. He's not a leader who advertises himself. He doesn't put on fancy clothes just so that folks will see him. In fact, we know from the prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus just had a form and appearance that was just kind of average. It didn't stick out. That's not that's not who he is. His demeanor is not arrogant. He's just not, he doesn't have some swagger about him. No, there's, there's a peacefulness about him, a peaceful demeanor about him. He's not dismissive of others, but he is gentle. It says, a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. You ever feel like that? Do you, do you resonate with that image? Bruised reed, beat up by things, faintly burning wick, you feel like I, I've tried and, and it's weary and the, the wind's just blowing and I, I think the flame is just going to flame out. But the king of the universe is not. Reordering human civilization by bullying. He he did it by suffering. The king is not being harsh, but gentle. He's not imposing demands. Rather, he stood in the way and he absorbed our sins. He's not making others feel miserable or shamed. Rather, we know him to be the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. So if we find ourselves in the struggle, in the discouragement, we look to Christ who understands. Who understands that's the one who's going to rule. He understands And it says in verse four, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. When you find yourself discouraged, you just want, sometimes we just want to be carried. We come to the end of ourselves, we just want to be carried. And it says here that he does not faint or he is not discouraged. Now, Jesus wasn't immune to suffering. He he suffered in this life. He experienced challenge in this life. But here's the thing about Jesus. He was resilient. He had endurance. Because he was dependent on the Spirit, and he gave his life. And there is no hindrance for him anymore because he's the strong son of God who sits at God's right hand and he intercedes for us right now. He is not worn out. When you're worn out and you lay down at bed at night, he is still active on your behalf. We feel the struggle And, and the idols we can be tempted to go to, they don't deliver. But Jesus brings about a transformation as the text goes on. He brings about a trans- the transformation that we are longing for. Look at verse 5. It says, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Jesus is the one that gives you the breath that you are breathing. I'm always amazed that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power because that means he sustains those that are rebelling against him. He sustains us even when we find ourselves in disobedience. He continues to sustain us, and he is the one that gives us new life. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. He keeps us. Jesus said, in John 10, 28, he said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You've had that wrestling with someone? If you have siblings, you've you've wrestled with something, you know, with someone, or or if you've you've had friends, there was that thing. Jesus isn't wrestling with us. He's holding on when we've got nothing left. And nothing is gonna yank us out of his hand. He wins the tug of war every time. And often he stands in the way. It says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nation to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. He opens our eyes to see our need for him because there was a time when we found ourselves trapped in patterns of sin, selfishness. Pride, arrogance, giving ourselves over to the lusts of the flesh. And when Jesus came to you, he opened your eyes to see. And for some of you, Jesus is going to come to you today to open your eyes to see. Not to shame you, but to help you to see that what you are pursuing is worthless. It is lifeless. It will never deliver for you. And he comes to the rescue to take you out of that. Because he says, he's, he does that to point us to the Lord who says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. The new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God is patient with us. He loves us until we get it. And he is doing a new thing. And we can be enamored by new things, waiting for the newest thing to come out. But this new thing that he is doing is a transformative thing in your life. There is the new thing that he did when he saved you. When you first encountered him and you came to Christ, that was a new thing. You came to know him, but he continues to do new things in you. The miraculous new thing that he does is when he reveals things to you that are part of your old life and you put them to death and you pursue him, you experience a new measure of grace, a new level of joy, a new level of intimacy with him. And he continues to do that because he's conforming us to the image of his son until it's all complete. When we see him, face to face. See, in this world, people are trying to find themselves. I have had numerous conversations with young people. You hear the phrase, I'm just trying to figure it out, just trying to find myself, just trying to discover who I am. I'm on a journey to to understand who I am, to find my true self. But it is only in the Lord Jesus Christ that we discover our truest self. It is only in Him. Because in Him, when we submit ourselves to Him, we are transformed by the power of the gospel. And it's only by his grace that we submit ourselves to him and know our real identity. Because our identity isn't to be wrapped up in this thing or that thing. Our identity is to be wrapped up in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what God sees when we go to him in prayer. Not what we have done not our falling short, not our current struggle. Jesus' victory is what he sees. And so when we come to him, there's a refocus of our attention. There's a transformation because of him and a refocus of our energies, and that is to worship. And the call in the text is sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. Who go down to the sea and all that fills it. The coastland and all their inhabitants. God wants us to sing a new song. He not only wants you to sing a new song. He wants... He wants individuals to sing a new song from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The nations are raging, one trying to rule over the other. And the idols that we could give ourselves to, they only divide, but worship unites us. Worship unites us because if we are truly worshiping, we are focused on the King, not on what seems to be our differences. When we are worshiping the King, we're not focusing on us, we're focusing on Him. That's why Jesus can be the only one that draws the true crowd. There's no fights in the background to get the seat like there might be at a concert that people go to, there's no people getting trashed to go to this big event. No, because when everyone is focused on him, nothing else matters. And the picture we get of that is in Revelation 5, when it says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. when we come and gather publicly to worship, we aren't putting on a show for anyone. You aren't coming to put a show on for the person who's sitting next to you. We're all coming before the audience of one. The one who laid his life down for us. And as we come to him. It changes the way that we worship. Because if we're focused on us, we're going to worship like this, looking at the ground. I'm just going to be quiet. Now, I understand there are different personalities, and God uses those as we worship. You know, I know mine's just, I talk and I use my hands. So when I sing, it kind of looks like that. In others, maybe that's not your personality, but it looks like something. When God transforms your heart, if you are unaware of the people next to you and you are most aware of the one that we've come to sing, it's gonna be loud, it's going to be amazing and we're gonna find joy because we won't care about who, who the person next to us is thinking, we're gonna care about what he's thinking and we're aware of what he's thinking, we're aware we don't deserve for him to have good thoughts about us because, but because of what Christ has done, he looks upon us with favor and may it transform the way that we worship because our God transforms idolaters, into worshipers. Because in verse 16, it says, and I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. Author Ray Ortland said, The greatest miracle in the universe is not when God hung the planets in space. The greatest miracle in the universe is when God transforms a compulsive idolater into a glad worshiper of himself alone. The miracle is that we would see more fully the giver and not the gifts. And the joy that we receive from the gifts God's given us is meant to direct our hearts to Him. The gifts that are given are meant to direct us to Him so if we don't get that gift that we think that we need or when something's taken away, that's why we can say the Lord gives and takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord because we know at the end of everything we get Him. Because of what Christ has done, we get Him. But then this section Comes to a close in verse 17 with just again a, a sobering reminder. It says, They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, You are our gods. Because false gods, they never deliver. They are as helpful as the pink pig. But Jonathan Edwards said God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Let's pray. Brothers and sisters, as we go to pray, God God wants us to yield to Christ today. We're not to come with any pre-conditions. We pray like this. Lord, you are the only true hope of the world. You are our only hope. We admit our share of responsibility for the world as it is. Father, forgive our injustices, destroy our idols, transform us, Lord, to be the men and women that will honor the strong name of Jesus. You alone are our salvation, and we give our allegiance wholeheartedly to you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.